Welcome everybody to the Diecast Movie Podcast. For this episode, we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody. Just before we start the interview with Richard Dick Dizel, alias known as Count Gordival, I know what everybody's waiting to listen to. I just wanted to say that um, the podcast, Diecast Movie Podcast, is again up for the Rondo Award for Best Podcast. So if you feel inclined to vote for us, you can find how to vote on our pinned comment on our Facebook page. and That'll tell you how to go about voting for our, our podcast and the other categories that are available. Also, I just want to remind everybody that Kevin Slick, who joined me in our last episode, Sunrise, A Song of Two Hearts, has a new album out, Coming Home, and we're going to play the promo for it in just a second. Um, so that way you can go help support um, independent artists like himself. And I just want to say a lot of people seem to be enjoying that episode so far. And if you want to send us feedback, send us feedback to diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com. And I do have some feedback that I'll be sharing at the end of the episode that we received so far. Okay. Hi, this is Kevin Slick, and you're listening to music from my album Coming Home. If you like acoustic roots, folk music, I think you might enjoy this new album. The album is available on all the streaming platforms like Spotify and Tidal and other such ones. Uh, you can also download copies from Bandcamp or Apple Music and sources like that. And if you'd like to buy a physical copy, check out the store at kevinslick.com. Hope to see you sometime soon. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. Um, today, I'm joined with TV personality, actor, horror host, Richard Dicell. How you doing today, sir? I'm doing fine, but no, no one would know who Richard Dicell is. I mean, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> they would know you better as... Well, primarily as Count Gore Duvall, the host of Creature Feature, the weekly web program at CountGore.com, or at uh, my Broku channel, Count Gore Duvall Presents. How do you like that for sneaking into the commercial? Oh, that's fine. Either sneak them in, sneak them in. I really don't care because you're doing me a favor. And I just want to say right off the bat, this is a privilege for me because I grew up in the Baltimore area. You were a big DC personality with um, Captain 20. Bozo the Clown, Count Cordival, you know, it's just, I grew up watching you do different things on TV. And so for personally for me, this is a privilege. Well, I'm, I'm glad to fulfill one of your bucket list items. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm so happy. But you know what? Let me tell you a funny thing is you said, talk about Bozo. Well, we can tell you boys and girls, it's your old pal Bozo. <laughs> Bozo brought me to Washington. You talk about, yes, Captain 20 here. Captain 20, huge. Didn't have much of a show until the late 70s because he was just a drop-in character 
uh, between cartoon shows, uh, ran a great contest, a lot of a lot of contests, gave away lots of stuff. Um, but you know, and the Count Gordeval, of course, you know, from 70, 60, 73 on, you know, he was just huge. Uh, but the show that got me my lone Emmy, no one mentioned, which was Kids Break, which was actually a show I wasn't supposed to produce. Uh, they hired someone else to do it. She blew it. They finally came back to me and said, save the show. I did. It was a combination of puppets and live action. I did 11 different character voices on it. And in 1984, it got me my lone Emmy. And then no one remembers that. But that's how it's huge. Yeah, big, big, green, funny guy, you know. <laughs> anyway, all that. Well, I think for me, the reason is at the time Kids Break came out, I was, I was above that target audience age-wise. No, that's probably true. That's true. Because I had, I had a career from 72 to 87. I mean, basically, I, we went through two generations of kids. Oh, exactly. And for a lot of people growing up, you were the guy. And uh, the amazing thing was they never knew you were all these different guys. <laughs> you know, when I grew the mustache in 77, it became came somewhat obvious that Captain 20 and Count both had mustaches suddenly at the same time. Now, Bozo, we hid it under latex for about three months, <laughs> and then we canceled Bozo. <laughs> the mustache killed the clown. <laughs> well, you know, what, what trumps a, cr- a, clown, a, cr- a clown? Mustaches. You know, So if anybody has a, a clown that's attacking them or terrorizing them, grow a mustache. It'll keep the clowns away. There you go. But um, it's just I just find it fascinating because when you were doing the horror host part, Count Gordival, I I think by the time I was watching that, I was no longer watching Captain Twenty because I was a little older and that kind of thing, and um, so I was focusing more on the Count. But I think it was when you were doing your second iteration of it in the eighties. On the yes, yes, yeah. is is when I came on with the Count, and I just loved it because here was my local horror host. It was, it was between you and Channel 45, and it depended on which movie it was, I would pick it in. And the hard part with your station being Channel 20 and I'm being in Baltimore, for listeners that don't understand, back in the day, you had to have the antennas the right way on your little black and white TV and the aluminum foil the right way. And I didn't know until <laughs> recently, because I was always watching on a black and white small portable TV, that you were in color. <laughs> <laughs> Funny thing about that. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, brilliant, shining, uh, black and white was a lot of the movies, but no, all the studio segments. Actually, you know what? It was interesting. Producing producing the count. And, you know, I, I know how they produced uh, Ghost Host in Channel 45 in Baltimore. And it really was a one-camera, very low-budget operation. But on the contrary, in Washington... We were actually produced out of two different studios, depending on the era. In the 80s, we were talking about we were in Studio A, which was the, the big studio. Um, it was huge. It was wonderful. It was state-of-the-art. We had three cameras, one of them on a crane, dolly crane. So we were able to get cameras about 10, 10 12 feet in the air. Uh, we, so we had three cameras, a, a floor operator, floor, floor manager, we had a dedicated audio person, a dedicated director, dedicated uh, engineer. We had a complete crew. It was quite a, quite a production. And the crew was actively involved in the production of the show because I'd walk in there and I'd, they'd say, oh, what are we doing? And i go, you got me. What do you want to do? <laughs> <laughs> and from what I understand, you, you really didn't script anything. You're, you're pretty much ad-libbing most of the time. You know, we did format the shows. So we, I had a pretty good idea what we were going to do. Scripting, no. Script, scripts always scared me. Um, uh, I don't have a theater background. I don't have a movie background. Although I was in uh, three of Don Dollar movies, and I had to do a script. Uh, and it scared me uh, because I was always very concerned about making sure I get every syllable, every nuance, the way it was written, not realizing that the script is kind of like a... Um, a suggestion, <laughs> a very specific suggestion. We did have one show that was scripted. 
I had a guest brought in the script. She was coming on the show and she said, well, here, this is the script I want to do. And she was from a film background. And I'm going, I don't think so. <laughs> you, know, I, I, you know, you just hand me this thing. It's 15 pages long and you want me to do this scripted? Uh, no, we, we did. I had a format. Uh, I had a specific, if we had specifics, like a specific uh, roll in of video or whatever, we would, director was, was well aware of that. But we never really worked off of the script. It was actually, it was kind of funny you should mention this because I actually, in the year 2000, I finally took an acting class. <laughs> I, mean, I was like, well, I got nothing better to do. Um, we had just come out with the web program and I said, let me die some time. So I took an acting class. And that's when I realized that one, I was an actor and had been, I never considered myself an actor. I considered myself may, maybe an entertainer, but mainly a producer. I was very production oriented. Um, and uh, that I really had a knack and ability to ad lib. And uh, especially if I let my inhibitions run wild. I mean, it was, it was, and Grover is always his best when, uh, when, when you, you know, just, you know, he'd grab an idea and run with it. Sometimes he'd fall flat on his face, and that's when it was really funny. I think the approach you did was reminiscent to me of live theater, where, of course, you're not able to see the audience. You're feeding off the crew. Uh, but after a while, I guess from feedback and things like that, you start to know what the audience is anticipating or wanting, and so you're going that way. But I think your crew probably – fed into what area to go as you were improving. Oh, there's no question. There's no question. Um, an audience might've been interesting. Uh, we had an audience with Bozo. Uh, we didn't, we had a limited audience for some of the captain 20 shows, but Gore never had an audience other than the crew or any guests that we might have had on the show would be, a, they might be stick around for an audience, but most of them came and went. Um, but as far as my who my audience was, it was very interesting. It's a funny story. Uh, very early, very early on, we went on the air in February '73, and by '74 we were number one uh, in our time slot. I mean, we, we for the first year we beat out Saturday Night Live, uh, which was really kind of awesome. Um, but I, I once 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 went into my program director, who was basically responsible for selling the management on putting the show on the air. And I said, Jim, uh, you know, I, I, you know, you have the rating books in front of you. You have the demographics. Uh, I don't understand them as much as you do. Could you tell me who my audience is? I'd like to know who I'm dealing with, right? All I see are cameras. And he, he, he sat back. He leaned back in his chair, kicked his feet up on his desk. He had his cowboy boots on. He was a good Southern boy. Uh, and took a drag on his cigarette, thought about it for a while, and said, Dick, your audience is half female and half stoned. <laughs> this is the seventies. Okay, I can deal with this. <laughs> and that's who I dealt. I just imagine my audience was people, you know, people coming in from uh, from an evening of carousing and drinking and whatever, or and then they're there, you know, having maybe smaller horror parties. I don't know, but having fun, you know, so that's, that's how, how I viewed my audience. That's true. And you could have been because you came on 11 o'clock at night. It could have been that they were having to party while you were going on and you were the thing that they were doing the stuff and they're like, well, the movie's over. Hold the movies, have the pause. It's the count. Shh, shh, shh. And everybody's listening to you riff or talk about different things. Yeah, actually it's kind of true. We, we did get a lot of feedback from people who said they did have Saturday night parties around the, around the show as a matter of fact, the uh, assistant to the program director, uh, a wonderful woman um, who just celebrated a, a big birthday. I don't remember what, what year it was. But anyway, uh, she uh, lived in Reston and belonged to the Reston Country Club. And uh, she uh, said, Dick, I can tell you right now, every Saturday night I go into the country club and at 11 o'clock, here are all these high-powered Washington lawyers sitting there at the bar watching your show. I go, okay, I got the sharks. <laughs> <laughs> that's when you know, that's when you know you hit the big time, right? When you got the wall street crowd, so to speak. And the, and the, and the lawyers all watching you. 
But that's true. That's true. It was, it, it, you know, it helped along. Now, how, you know, that, that, that didn't last forever. It's like everything else. It's cyclical. We started off really hot. And then by the end of the set, by the end of the seventies, um, when the new management came in, they decided, well, we could do better with other programming. And actually they put us on hiatus initially for 12 weeks to run, believe it or not, um, reruns of Latin, the previous week's Redskin game. And I went, huh? It didn't do well. So then they said, well, we'll do this other program called Solid Gold. Yeah, that didn't work out so well. And then so they kept doing this. They kept doing this. Now, at that point in time, I will say that with the change of management, they had me doing a lot more kids stuff. We not only had uh, the Captain 20 show, but we actually had, you know, like I said, I said we, had, we had kids break. Uh, and then we also had a bunch of critical television viewing specials that were re- part of the requirement that the new owners made to the FCC to get the license. And then as an aside thing, which was really exciting, I was working with the, I won't, the, the, the program director for the group that we were owned by a group. And she and I would get together every once in a while, and we were working on possible syndication programming because we had the best facility of the group. Uh, that They dumped a lot of money into Studio A. And so actually we did a pilot, and uh, it would have been great. Uh, we would have had a wonderful show, and it might have altered my career tremendously. But that was also the era when there were a lot of uh, leverage takeovers and no sooner did they get the station established, get the new studio built and start making plans than somebody on Wall Street decided to leverage buy out the station. And there we go. And the new guy came in. The first thing he said is, hey, we're going to shut down the facility. We don't need all these local programs. We can just take them off of a satellite from Hollywood. Goodbye. So that's, uh, yeah, that's how that works. Yeah, sadly, that is how it works. And uh you know, things get, things are going nice, and then you got somebody that's like, oh, we don't need to have local stuff. We just need to have everything more corporate. It kind of reminds me of, like, the mom-and-pop stores getting taken over by the box stores. It, it's, you know, those kind of things. Local programming losing yeah. out to national. There's no question. But I will say this. I will say this, and I, I've looked back and reflected on this a lot. I am so glad and so happy that I was able to participate in the era of Admittedly, it was a tail end of the era, but still in the era of local television. It wasn't live, but it was produced as live, and uh, it was very entertaining. And you're right. In many ways, it was like little theater. Matter of fact, one of the critics, Arch Campbell, who worked for a competing station, the NBC station, he was a big fan of the show. And he he said, he came over and visited us and did a piece on us and said, it's like walking into a little theater without an audience. I mean, it, it, it's, it's fun. It's exciting. There's a lot of energy, and it's true. And uh, I, uh, I'm glad I had an opportunity to experience that. Well, I was, I was glad to watch it and enjoy it when it, you know, at a period of time that it's, it's kind of hard to replicate the local experience. But you've still kept it going because you were one of the, the first ones, to my knowledge, to start it as a web on the Internet. In 1998? Not, not, not one of the first. I was the first. Um, it was July 11th, 1998. I, I, I marked that down because no one has challenged me on this, and I sure as heck couldn't find anyone at the time who was on the Internet. Um, as it turned out, when I, when I, at the same time, I was running a DJ company, um, and I realized that the Internet was a great place to do advertising. Uh, it was a lot cheaper than four-color print. And, uh, and people were, were coming onto the internet and searching for DJs on the internet. So I, my company, Sounds Fabulous, had a, had a site. And I learned how to do it. I learned HTML. And I learned how to, how to you know, put together a website. And um, I said, well, why don't we? I own the account. I, I, own the, I own the name. I own the material that we had done. I, the station had given me the tapes. I had the old tapes. I mean, I, I, had, I had this, what I thought might be, of valuable property. So 
So I said, let's let's put it on the air. Now in '98 we couldn't stream because everyone was using 28.8 dial-up. I mean, this is the era when everyone was sitting there. Every day in the mail would come a little disc from AOL saying, "Please join AOL," <laughs> and you know you'd get tossed those suckers. I mean, it's like frisbees every day. Anyway, so um, actually I did have an AOL account for a while, um, but uh, so I said, let's let's try it. What we did was I sat down. And uh, I said, "Let's. Uh, what what was the essence of the program other than the movie?" And we had guests on, and we had interviews, and we had celebrities. And uh, I said, "Well, what if we did a a, an, a text version to start with, including text interviews with celebrities that I've done?" And then, uh, not very quickly after that, like like a couple of months later, I discovered a widget that would allow me to do highly compressed audio. So we did audio interviews. I started doing conventions and, and interviewed folks at conventions. Dee Wallace was actually one of the first people who I ever interviewed, and we still keep in touch. I, I can't remember how many times I've interviewed Dee. Um, uh, and uh, so we did that. Then in 99, uh, Real Media came out with... Uh, their little player, and I was able to highly compress little 160 by whatever it was uh, things. And we, I said, okay, we'll build a little studio and we'll host. I figured no one was going to watch a full movie with these little screens. I mean, it's like I wouldn't do it. So I figured they're not, well, no one else is going to do it. So I said, let's do serials. So we did the Flash Gordon serials, which are public domain. And that worked out okay. And then as the technology went up to 56K and then DSL and finally uh, cable and then you know, satellite, the whole thing, we, we, we just kept up with it to uh, now to where we're on fully HD uh, back in the early teens. Uh, am I going to, people ask, are you going to go 4K? And I'm going, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think there's, there's a need for it. I mean, frankly, I, I look at my 4K TV. I watch my, my my stuff, and it looks great. I don't I don't need to do that. And besides that, since I'm doing public domain movies, most of them are really not that high quality. They weren't scanned for anything more than SD. So I I have gone in and I've taken many of the movies, and I've upresed them, make them look a little sharper, uh, cleaned them up where I can. But uh, so we're probably going to stay here for HD for a while. Well, I don't blame you because it's, I think 4K is, is a very niche type group that goes for it. I mean, I personally am happy with the high definition. And sometimes when you go to 4K, you, you're, you're really seeing the seams of the movie. You know, it's a little bit too much. You know, you're almost getting too much picture of what's going on and, and, and it takes away sometimes from the movie or the experience because it's it's it breaks that that fantasy that fantasy type barrier. Well, there's something to be said for that. I mean, how many times? I mean, first time I saw a 4K uh, sporting event, I go, huh. Not only did he not shave today, but he's got a pimple right there. <laughs> <laughs> kind of distracted from the game a little bit. Exactly, and. Uh, you talked about how you've had different guests on your show back when it was on TV and on the, who, who are some of the ones that, that you really look back fondly on that you got to interview or talk with as Count Gore Duval? Well, actually probably the, the most famous one uh, and most memorable one for a couple of reasons was Forrest J. Ackerman, Forry Ackerman, Mr. Monster. At the time he was the biggest collector. This would have been in the uh, mid eighties at the time. Uh, he was the biggest collector of horror memorabilia in the world. He had a mansion in Cal in Hollywood or outside of Hollywood in the LA area where he had all this stuff. He had Drac you know, Bella Lugosi's Dracula ring and a bunch of the, the, the cane from the werewolf, Lon Chaney. Um, and uh, I had him on the show. We did seven interview segments with the brain that wouldn't die. And I, uh, matter of fact, it's, it's still available on DVD. Uh, he, we learned the history of uh, Vampirella, which I have the uh, poster, life-size poster at the top of my coffin. Um, so uh, that that was – now, I say th there's one problem with that interview, though, and that is at the time, I didn't know who the heck he was. I had one of my fans come up to me. She says, hey, I'm working with this convention, and Forey Ackerman is in town. 
you should have him on your show. And I go, who? I didn't read Famous Monster. I mean, you know, I'm, I, I didn't. I would, actually, at that point, I was so involved in producing kids programming, all I was reading were studies on television and how it affects kids. So I was totally oblivious. I said, well, if you, want, if you think it's good, have him come on the show. So she gives me a primer. She brings him out of the studio. I meet him. He's a nice guy. He's got, he's got the first episode, first issue of Famous Monster there. We talked a little bit. I have, I have a cheat sheet. And I felt a little guilty not knowing who he was. The interview turned out fine. I'm a pretty decent interviewer. I, uh, I have a background also in journalism. So I, you know, know how to listen to a, how I know how to listen to somebody and ask questions or elaborate on what they're saying, which is important. So it turned out okay, but, but it was, uh, I felt a little sheepish every time I'd see Corey at a, at a convention going, Hmm, he must know that I'm a fake, you know, I mean, it was, it was totally self-conscious, but it, it turned out okay. Uh, other, other interviews. Oh my gosh. Like I said, D Wallace was always fun. Um, Sid Haig. Yeah, he was, he was great. Um, uh, Michael Barry, uh, Berryman. Yeah. Uh, also a lot of fun. Oh gosh. Uh, two interviews. Now she wasn't a celebrity as far as, um, horror movies go. Matter of fact, she had nothing to do with horror movies. She had a lot to do with taking her clothes off, and that was Dominique Moray, who was the 1979 Penthouse Pet of the Year. She was on my show. Matter of fact, look at, people keep remembering these. In 1978 and 79, Penthouse would send out their Penthouse Pets, uh, both the Penthouse Pet of the Year and the Penthouse Monthly Pets, on a semi-regular basis uh, doing publicity tours. Most TV stations mm, did not open their arms because, frankly, they didn't want to be involved with adult programming. I didn't care. Um, if we could get some publicity, fine. If we have a beautiful woman on the show, that's great. Uh, it's interesting when they would always come on the show, they would be wearing turtlenecks and jackets. <laughs> and they, would have, they would have their handlers there. And I might as well be, be talking to someone from a uh, private girl's school. I mean, it was very strange. But anyway, Dominique was interesting because she was the only penthouse pet who actually had some kind of theatrical background and she was a good little actress. And she was at, we had lived seven segments that were just fun. Uh, I, I really enjoyed working with her. Funny story though, the following summer, uh, I was taking one of my few elaborate vacations. I said, I, I, I need to get away. And I, I went to Tahiti to the club med there. I was big into the club med. And, um, I was at the club and I'm in in the bar area and it was during the day and in comes, you, know, you have to understand, club med at that time, everyone wears bathing suits all the time. That's, how, that's it. Yeah, no one wears clothes. Bathing suits. In comes this, I'm looking up and here are these long, white, sleek pants and high heels. I'm going, who the heck is wearing high heels at a club med? And I look up and it's Dominique. It turns out that her prize for winning the penthouse pet of the year was a trip this club and she and her entire entourage and her boyfriend and everyone else was there and she'd walked in and uh, I, you know, I walk up there and said, Hey, good to see you. She said, do I know you? I said, yeah, you were in my coffin. Oh, she said, you were that freak in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah, that was me. And she said she had a lot of fun. So that we, <laughs> we chatted over a week. It was kind of fun. That's when you know it's a small world. <laughs> Oh yes, yes, it is. A, it, it it definitely is a small world. You go halfway around the world to some obscure little island, and you know, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't even Tahiti. It was Morea, the island next door. So. <laughs> and for listeners that want to know more about this, there is a documentary out there. Every other day is Halloween. That came out, I think, in two thousand and nine, and it gives a more of the background of the count and you at Channel Twenty. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Because one of the things, I'm doing two things, right? Three things right now. Obviously, I'm, I'm still doing actually four things. That's <laughs> I'm, still doing <laughs> I'm still doing a web program, which goes up every Saturday night. Every Saturday night, we have a new video. It's either a, it's either a feature, which will run for two weeks. And then on the following week, we'll run a short. Uh, I really like to promote new filmmakers because I think 
These short films show that there's a whole new generation of folks who have lots of talent, uh, and we show it there. Uh, so we're doing the web program every Saturday night. Uh, it goes up. Then on once a month, beginning of every month, we do uh, Count Gordeval Presents, which is my Roku channel, which is now over three years old. And every month we have uh, four hosted horror movies, uh, four celebrity interviews, and two uh, shorts that I really like. Uh, and that's, so it's a, it's a curated site. So you don't have to spend hours going through all the choices. Here are the choices. Take them or leave them, okay? But I'm also doing something I've always wanted to do and never had the opportunity to do because I was too tied into, uh, too identified with the station. And that's what I'm doing voice work right now. Uh, I'm, I'm doing two characters for a graphic novel called uh, Frankenstein Mobster, which Mark Wheatley did back a long time ago. As a matter of fact, Mark was very nice and let us serialize his this this particular graphic novel early when I was just started the web program. So back in the ni- late nineties. So boom. So they're 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 producing it not right now. So they hired me to do to the voices. Um, but we're also working on the follow up, the son of. Every other day is Halloween. Now, we're not going to actually do a new documentary. Now, the documentary stopped in 09. So the question is, yeah, what has this guy been doing since 09? And now it's, you know, 2022. Uh, So we're going to pick up and pick up some of the other things we've been doing. We have a lot of new footage. There's going to be, there's also, we're going to come out on Blu-ray. So we have lots of space. So it will be Every Other Day is Halloween. We're also going to add another documentary about my good friend, John Dimes, who plays Dr. Sarcophagi called Bald-Headed Blues. One of the favorite people I love working with. The guy is a professional stand-up comedian. He's an artist. He's a musician. Why are all these other people musicians and I'm not? I'll have to talk to you about that. But anyway, <laughs> I, have, I can mix music. I love music. I just can't play it. Um, then we're also going to have... Um, uh, we did new audio tracks, new commentary tracks, and uh, we're working on other things. I'm, I'm digging up some video footage that I thought I had lost. I just found it, and uh, we're, we're, we're putting it all together. So between now and my 50th anniversary, which is which will be in 23, it'll be the 50th anniversary of my first show on Channel 20, we're, we're, we're putting together this Blu-ray, which will come out, and it will have, for those Captain 20 fans, it will have a simulated, looks just like the real thing, Channel 20 club card. There you go. Yes. <laughs> I finally get that replace, replacement card. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It, it will get you. You show it at, at Starbucks, it will get you absolutely nothing. But that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it will give me the key cred with the certain crowd that I run with. So they'll be like, oh, I got my Captain 20 card. Do you? You know. <laughs> There you go. Oh, that's good news. I'm looking forward to that now. And um, you brought up, you did a lot of different movies for Don Doler. The first one was way back 1978. And I remember seeing this many times on TV growing up, the alien factor. Yes. I played Mayor Wicker, Bert Wicker. Don't call me Bert. Yes, you did. (laughs) And uh, I, I, Really enjoyed that movie. I don't know. Maybe it's because I saw it as a kid, and I still enjoy it now. And we we actually, I just did a review with it with a friend of mine for his show, Monster Kid Radio, uh, recently that went out uh, a couple months ago. When the time this air, airs, it'll be a couple months past. And it he enjoyed it also. This is his first time ever seeing it. He lives out in, in Oregon and, and that kind of stuff. So it was one of those things where he got to see it for the first time and other people that are listening to his show are watching it for the first time. And, and they're all getting that DYI vibe, you know, um, with the movie. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, I don't know what it is about the film. I'll be very honest with you, but it's, it, it's a film with a lot. People say it's a film with a lot of heart. And I believe that because everyone involved in that film really gave their all. They really wanted this to be a success and they were all, involved either wanting to be involved or currently involved in the film industry in some way so uh i mean they just put a lot into it and i guess it shows i mean the acting is really not very good uh 
Don Lightford was the only person who had any acting ability or had any acting experience. I mean, I came in and I had never done any, any film before. I was scared out of my wits. Um, so we had, you know, and they were trying things. They were, they were, they, they had to overcome a lot of obstacles. Like they started filming and then suddenly it started snowing. So they had to go back and refilm some of the stuff because they had to put that snow in it. And actually they had to reshoot the whole, the whole final sequence in the spring and to make it look like snow, I can't tell you how much, how many dollars they spent on ivory snowflakes, you know, spreading all over the place. So it looked like it was snow on the ground. I mean, yeah, it was, when it first came out, I, I know my parents were very disappointed. <laughs> they go, this is not a very good movie. I said, and she's, you're not very good at it. And I go, well, I'm as good as I can. And the script wasn't that terribly wonderful either, but, um, but it got picked up for television really quick. Channel 20 bought the package, so I was able to show it on my show, on Creature Feature. And that was kind of funny, because I had Gore interviewing the uh, unnamed actor who was wearing a brown paper bag on his head, talking about some of the backstory, and of course, it was me, uh, with, my, with my voice altered, so <laughs> Don didn't like that, but that's okay. Um, but yeah, the alien factor has you know has has held on very well. I mean, people just like it. That's cool. Like you said, the acting it is amateur. But I mean, it was it was it was a lot of people. It was their first film, or, their, or and some of them had acting experience in, in small theater. Some of them literally were just doing it for the very first time. And you know, I I just look at it as. They went out, they made a film, they got the film out there, and it has that charm. And the creature effects, the monsters, um, the aliens, whatever you want to call them, the designs of them, are, some of them are really good and hold up oh, yeah. well. Yeah, they, they, did, they, did, they did a lot of work. They got some very talented people building the monsters. Uh, the Zagatiel, which is the one that uh, kills me. Oh, no, I'm sorry. They say in the movie they killed the mayor, but we know because the mayor went, was back in night beast that he was, he was just severely injured. <laughs> you never, you, what they say, if you never see the body, is he really dead? <laughs> well, they, they showed the body. I just watched it again because uh, we're again, putting, you know, working on the supplements to uh, every other day. And yeah, they, they, they do see the body, but I'm lying there and bleeding. But the only person who says he's dead is this teenage girl, you know, Mary Jane. And what the hell does she know about dead? You know, she's a bloody body. Oh, he must be dead. Oh, no. I'm in the, I, my backstory was, I, 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 I'm severely injured. I'm unconscious. I'm bleeding, but I'm in the snow. So my body temperature drops. And, 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 and I, I, the paramedics come get me and they take me in and throw me out and revive me. And then I come back, I won re-election, and Mary Jane grows up, becomes absolutely vivacious, and becomes my secretary, and we do night beats. <laughs> <laughs> but how, how did you get involved in the Alien Factor? What uh, was Did Don Doler seek you out, or you happen to run into each other, or what? How did you get involved in the movie? Uh, the true story is he was on... He and uh, Charlie Ellis and uh, John Ellis and uh, Tony Melanowski were all on my show promoting the fact that they were making this movie. I, I wanted some guests, and they, I said, this might be interesting. So I had them on the show. They had, came down from Baltimore, and because um, they, they filmed up in Perry Hall. Perry Hill? Perry Hall? Perry Hall. I get them confused. Perry Hall. Uh, and uh, they came down, and uh, we did the seg we did the segments and afterwards, you know, talking about the movie, I said, I turned to Don and I said, you know, I'm a little bit miffed. He goes, Why? I said, You never asked me to be in your movie. <laughs> you come on my show, you want publicity, but you never asked me to be in the movie. And he goes, He looked kind of awestruck. He's like, he turned to the other guys and they're all looking at him. And he goes, Well, we didn't think you want to do it. I said, well, you were wrong. He goes, uh, well, we're sorry. Next, uh, so that's, you know, within the next week, I get a call. He says, 
we rewrote the part of the mayor, expanded it a little bit. Would you like to be the mayor? <laughs> sure, why not? And that's when I went into panic mode because suddenly I had to deal with the script. Now, this is a low-budget film. The last day of shooting, we were actually doing one, my first scene. When I show up after the first bodies have been recovered, and uh, I'm talking with the sheriff, and it was a cold, windy day. Oh, it was freezing. And they, they've got blankets on the camera to keep it from, you know, freezing up. And we're standing out there. So I, I'm out there with the script. And I've got like six pages of dialogue. And I want to make sure I get this right. And uh, they're, they're having problems with the wind whistling past the microphone and all the rest of this stuff. So anyway, I'm, I'm working on this script. And I'm diligently working on the script. And suddenly Don walks up to me. He says, can I have your script? He takes a script. He looks at it and starts ripping pages out. What are you doing? He goes, I said, that's all my lines. He goes, he said, you see that camera over there? And there's all these these guys huddling around the camera. He said, all the film we have left to shoot this movie is in that camera. We have room for, he hands me the script, this much. (laughs) (laughs) He said, get it right. We need it done in one take. No pressure. (laughs) So the entire movie, the the future of his entire career is based on me getting this in one take, (laughs) which I did. And um, yeah, that, that, (laughs) but but again, that was, you know, again, it was just, it was just an incredible experience. It really was. Um, They, there's one scene in the film. Uh, where myself and Mr. Zachary, who's this mystery guy who shows up and seems to know a lot about aliens, uh, we're out on this snowy field looking for a crashed spaceship, crashed spaceship. And they didn't have computers back then. This This had to be what they call forced perspective. So they had this little model of a spaceship, which actually was a toothbrush holder, that had been modified, painted. It had been put into, a, like it crashed into the ground with brown clay around it. The thing was about a foot long, maybe even less than that. And it was on a piece of plywood, maybe 18 inches square. And they had little twigs for trees and they stuck into the clay. And I'm going, what's that? He said, that's the spaceship you're going to see. And I'm going, and how are you going to do this? So we go out on a Sunday morning. Fortunately, it had just snowed, so it was bright. The sun was out, which meant we had an incredible amount of light, which meant the depth of field that we have for folks who know photography was almost infinite. So they've got the camera way up on this hill. We're shooting into a valley. The valley is actually a valley where the... line so they have the we're shooting under these high Don Lightfoot and I are down in this valley and we're waiting while they set this shot they've got the camera sitting literally with the lens four inches away from this model and they've got this thing stopped so they have this depth of field and finally they say okay we want want you to walk that away there's got to be 200 yards away and they're screaming I'm walking that away just do what we tell you well we did and I was curious, you know, because I couldn't understand. I knew that I knew the technique they were using, but it didn't seem like the geometry was working out. But you watch it, and dang, if it doesn't look like that spaceship is right there, and we walk right up to it, and I went, now that's the creativity of working with these really dedicated filmmakers. It was awesome. And I know, I know the shot exactly you're talking about, and one um. Derek Cook and I, the guy from Monster Kid Radio, were talking about it. We said how that shot was just perfectly filmed. I mean, you could there's no seams; it's just spot on, and it holds up today. I mean, you you yeah. can't you can't tell. I mean, you know it's you know it's forced perspective, but it's just beautifully done. Yes, there's no question about it. Another side little bit of trivia: the uh, the black spacesuit 
that the alien is wearing was my motorcycle suit that I bought from Sears. <laughs> Actually, it was a snowmobile suit that I was using as a motorcycle suit because I, I, ride, I ride motorcycles. And I was commuting to and from the station on a motorcycle in the wintertime. I was too cold. So I bought this. And they said, we need a spacesuit. Well, how about this? So they said, okay, that works. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know about that. I did not know. So, so you not only you not only were an actor in it, but you were also helping out with costume design in a sense. <laughs> Everyone did everything. I mean, if, if, if there was, you know, if something needed to be done and you could, you had some idea of how to do it or could be follow instructions, you did it because again, you're part of a team working on this effort. I mean, and we had the same thing in Night Beast too, which I thought was a from an acting and scripting standpoint better. Um, the third movie that I was in with him was Galaxy Invader. I thought the script was kind of interesting. It, was, it had humor in it. Um, I thought my, that was my best acting role, uh, but that was because I had worked a deal with them. Uh, he, had, he, he needed to produce this movie really quickly, and uh, they had a, a, a package, and they were one film short, and so I, I can whack out a real quick one here. And so he did Galaxy Invader, and uh, it was one alien uh, being chased by a bunch of rednecks. Um, and I was playing this college professor and uh, trying to stop the rednecks from killing the alien. And uh, he said, well, you know, would you be in the movie? And I said, Don, I'll do it under three conditions. He said, what are they? He said, one, I want to have a bedroom seat. <laughs> I have to... <laughs> this is because in Night Beast, the sheriff got a bedroom seat. Okay. He said, okay, what's the second one? I said, I just restored a 1964 Studebaker Avanti I wanted in the film. He goes, okay, we can have you drive in Avanti. Okay, fine. And I said, the third, I don't want to read any of your lines. <laughs> he went, what? <laughs> I said, Don, I love you like a brother. You're a great director, a great editor, but you're writing. Everyone is speaking in the same voice. You read the the, whether the, it's the redneck, the college professor, the college student, the redneck's girlfriend, all the lines read the same. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take the lines you've written for Professor Pace, Tracy, and I will put them in my own words, in professor's words, as a professor would do it. And uh, it'll be, it just won't, it'll be the same meaning, but it'll just be coming from a different voice. He hemmed and hawed, and he finally said yes. I did this for two reasons. One, for what I said. I thought I could do a better job of ad-libbing the lines the way the professor would say it. And two, I didn't want to have to memorize his lines. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I thought it worked out well. Um, As a matter of fact, there was one scene in the bar where the waitress, who's a real waitress in this bar, comes up, and I'm there with my college student and she says well hi jamie uh what can i get you he said well i'll have a i'll have a whatever i'll have a coke and she looks at me and i was supposed to say well i'll have a beer but i figured well you know i'm a college professor why would i just have just have a beer i said well could i get a a vodka vodka martini shaken not stirred with a twist on ice and she wasn't ready for this she's not an actress she's never had this she's just a waitress and she goes no I go, okay, then I'll have a beer. (laughs) (laughs) And she just, okay. She walks out and Don says, you know, I like it. We'll keep it. (laughs) And that that fits because you you could go to some places, you know, where you're like, oh, I'm with this. You've seen in many movies where the the upper class type guy goes into like a a local establishment and will say some complicated thing. And they'll be like, well, we, we don't have that. We have this. Oh, I'll take that then. So you basically yeah. were right there with the trend that people have been doing nowadays for the last couple of decades. <laughs> yeah. I probably saw that in the film someplace, but I said, yeah, this, this might be a little fun. And it, it worked out. Okay. <laughs> but I, I do die real well. You know, I've died in all three of his movies, so that's okay. <laughs> But did you? Well, I, no, I shouldn't say it because I, 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 they thought I died in the first one, but it looked like I died. As I say, I was going to say, did you really die in the first one? I'm like, mm, you, you already yeah. established yeah. that you, you miraculously survived. 
but in Night Beast, they see my head being pulled off. No, there's no, no, no. Yeah, that's it. Oh yeah, if yeah, the head's pulled off, it's pretty. It's pretty much, unless you came back as the, um, you know, like one of those movies where the head, you know, the only the head that survives, and it's it's underneath the glass plate. <laughs> you could have been, you could have been made into a movie that the count would be talking about later on. <laughs> the mayor who wouldn't die. <laughs> <laughs> that actually has a ring to it, you know. That, that's that that title. Oh, has a don't ring. make it. <laughs> I like I like the sound of that. No, that, that that's pretty cool. And, and you also went back to playing a mayor again in um, Crawler. Ah, yeah, Crawler was kind of a cameo. Uh, I had just I, I I had moved. I move a lot. I mean, I, I had been for a number of years. I was living in the Chicago suburbs, and then I. Uh, basically, I followed my wife. She had a career, a very successful career as a research chemist. And uh, so, you know, I'm an actor. I can go wherever, especially, especially when I'm not tied to a station. So we were at the Chicago for 10 years. And we came back. When I came back, Don said, hey, you know, I'm uh, making this other movie. You want to do a cameo in this? You have a you know, small role for the mayor. I go, sure. Yeah, so what's involved? Well, this beautiful girl sits in your lap with very little clothes on. And I'm going, you got me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no conditions. You got me with just that. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to admit, it was not a pleasant experience. You know, I mean, you're, you're an actor. I mean, you're serious. This, this is not, this is not make-believe. This is your, she's an actress. You're an actor. You're, you're playing roles. And you've got, you know, you, you, you've got to stay within the, the bounds of your, your, your character. And, you know, I, I, can, I, I tried to be lecherous with that, being lecherous. You know, it, that's a tough thing to do. It is. And, and that one was interesting because Don Dollar wrote it, but he didn't direct it, according to IMDb. It was directed by Joe uh, Ripple. Joe Ripple. Yes. And it was right after this that Don died. And the film wasn't completed until 2021 uh, because Joe Ripple was supposed to play the alien in the film and it was going to be a rubber suited monster. So they put him into this uh, latex rubber suit and he had a severe allergic reaction to the latex rubber to the point that I think he had to go to the hospital uh, and they said, no, we can't do this. So they uh, they figured they were going to use. This was the era when the Mac was the big machine, uh, and they were going to do their a local CGI of the uh, monster, and it, it didn't work out. So they had the whole film shot, but they didn't have the monster, um, and it took them quite literally a, more than a decade for people who were involved to start working on and creating this monster and every time they'd get it to the point where it looked pretty good, some new software would come out and they'd say, well, we can do it better with this. <laughs> and they kept going and going. And finally they said, okay, this is it. And uh, so they, the movie got uh, kind of, re- kind of, kind of released in 2021. It still hasn't had a theatrical showing yet that I'm aware of. Um, it's a, it's it's a decent little film. Again, it's it's well well produced, well directed. Joe did a good job of directing it. The the creature turns out to be uh, relatively relatively believable. I mean, it's it's, it's an interesting interesting creature. Uh, very three dimensional. Uh, so yeah, it was, a, it was an okay movie. Awesome. And uh, you've been in a lot of other different things. I'm not going to go over everything that you've done in because we only have so much time for the interview. And, uh, but what do you, what do you have coming out or coming up soon besides what you talked about already? Isn't that enough? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really? Well, you, well, you only gave me four. Actually, I want to get to that thumb. I want to get to the, the one for the thumb. <laughs> actually, uh, the, the, the one thing we want to get back, to, it's getting back to, uh, starting in 2013 with the 40th anniversary of the start of creature feature, we started doing live hosted movies uh, in the theater. Uh, the American Film Institute in uh, the Silver Spring Theater, the AFI Silver, uh, said, well, you know, we'll, you can show the first movie you hosted on Channel 20 here, and you can, you can host it uh, in the theater. 
and as an anniversary thing. And we packed the theater. We had 400 plus people in the theater, and um, it was it was really awesome. I mean, it was just. I mean, I I have a picture, a stitched together picture of me in front of the audience starting this thing, and I, you know, if I'd have died there, I'd have been a happy person, happy corpse. I don't know. As the case may be, we uh, it was so successful. The AFI said, mm, "You want to do this again?" So basically, from 2023, 20, 2013 to 2020, we did it three times a year, and they were all very good. We had a good time. I got to pick the movies. <laughs> this was awesome, and they were in public domain. I mean, we did House on Haunted Hill, which is public domain, but we we did the the thing. From another world, and John Carpenter's a thing is a double feature. I mean, this was awesome. I got to head, so I got to play, and this was fun. And I would start off every show. Uh, sometimes I had guests. Arch Campbell, the uh, media critic from Washington, was on my show. Came down a number of times. Uh, Tony Perkins from WTTG was on the show. Uh, Wes Johnson, who does a lot of voice work in uh, video games. Uh, and is the the announcer at the Capitals games in Washington? He he was on. Uh, Holly Morris from WTTG was on the show. So we had, we had we had guests on the show. Basically, we do an opening monologue. So we we opened up with video clips of my TV show and my internet show. About 10, 15 minutes of that to set the stage. Then I would be introduced. I would come out. We'd do some kind of an opening monologue. And then we'd have uh, some kind of a contest. Sometimes there's a physical contest, uh, a la bozo, uh, because people like doing stupid things like that. <laughs> and then sometimes there's just trivia. Nothing trivial about that. Some of the questions were hard. And then we'd show the movie. And we'd show the movie uninterrupted. And we always got really good prints. Sometimes they were really pristine 35 millimeters. Sometimes they were remastered digital. Uh, that's the one nice thing about the AFI Silver. They have a plethora of projection techniques they can use. Um, but then that came to a stop with COVID. And uh, I, what I'm really hoping for this year is two things. In addition to what we're doing with the uh, Every Other Day and uh, the web program and, and the Roku channel, I want to get back to doing conventions again. We still do every year the Scares That Care convention. Now, Joe Ripple, you mentioned him, directed uh, Crawler. He went on, he was the security person for horrifying conventions out of Baltimore for a number of years. And I did all their conventions but one. And uh, they were they were awesome conventions. And he went on and with a group of the, when, when they stopped doing the horrifying conventions, got he and a bunch of people who were doing the conventions got together and came up with the idea of doing a convention that would raise money for charity. And they call it scares that care. And they've been doing this now for eight, nine years, something like that. And I've done all of them, but one. And, um, I, I basically host produce and host their costume contest and I'm there with the celebrities and it's, it's a lot of fun. So we did that this past year and we're going to do that again this year. Uh, but I'm hoping to do other conventions. I have another convention. The first time we're doing a convention west of the Mississippi in uh, suburban Dallas at Irving, Texas uh, Convention Center. We're doing that in November or October. Oops, November uh, after Halloween. I'd like to go back to the AFI. So I'd like to get this whole pandemic thing behind us so I can get out with it and bite necks again. And <laughs> <laughs> So, so that's that's what we're hoping to do. Uh, you know, once once this thing kind of settles down, maybe gets to an endemic position. So, we'll see. Fingers crossed, everything will get back to where we can actually start to have a lot of these things again. I've been to some conventions that have come back um, this past year, and um, those kind of things, and some some other ones are still virtual, and everybody's, you know, different levels of safety. You know, everybody has different risk thresholds. Um, as to how they want to go about doing certain things and which is perfectly fine, you know, and, uh, and that kind of stuff about getting things to where they want to do it. But I'm looking forward to hopefully getting to meet you in person at one of these conventions, you know, or, or the AFI. Well, that, that would be wonderful. I'd, I'd be delighted to do that. Uh, I've talked to the folks at the AFI. They'd be delighted to have me back. 
<clears throat> excuse me, but they're basically relying both on the conditions uh, of the local market and also my safety, how, how safe I feel about doing it. And right now, you know, we like, I'll give you an example. When we did scares this past summer. It was, everything looked good. You know, everyone, you know, the vaccine was out and uh, everyone felt pretty comfortable. The, the infection rates were down and it was going to be an unmasked convention. And I thought this was okay. This, I can deal with this. Uh, because most of the people who attend these things are fairly responsible vaccines that they take to go for the vaccine. And so that, which I think is a no brainer, but that's, but anyway, so, but then the Delta variant hit and then we went with a mass convention and that was fine too. I mean, it, it was kind of difficult uh, with the mask and the makeup, but it, it worked. And once we get on stage for the costume contest itself, since we were very isolated, there was no one nearby, and most of the costumers were in, in many of them had total body masks on. <laughs> so, was, um, so, you know, but it, it just really depends. You got to be flexible. I'm hoping by November, which is when I booked this convention in, uh, in Texas, um, that uh, we are in the endemic stage. I, I would I would really hope so if people would start behaving themselves and either either stay well or die. I know I shouldn't say that, but I, I, I get very frustrated. I, I just want this thing to be over with. I'm sure everyone is. I think so, too. And um, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to do this interview with me, to allow me to reminisce with you about the times of my youth you know, when you're on channel 20 and hopefully listeners will realize you're still out there. You're the horror host. That's the first on the internet and you can go Yay. there to countgore.com and you can still be seeing what I was growing up watching is still going on today. Actually. Uh, yeah. And, and we're starting to get some non-public domain movies. Uh, we're, we're, uh, some filmmakers are coming to us with independent productions. So yeah, it's 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 going to be it's still going to be a lot of fun, and like I said, we're we're, we're working our way towards our our fiftieth anniversary in February of twenty three, and it's going to be an exciting time. Well, thank you again, and um, listeners, thank you for listening to us talk and have this reminiscence about the past, and join us for our next episode where it either be a movie decided by the roll of a die, or an interview, or a continuation of the James Whale retrospective series. Otherwise, everybody stay safe and do something fun. Go to countgore.com and see what I grew up watching and just enjoy this man's work because it is awesome. Let me wrap it up by saying, may all your blood be warm. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Count Gore Duvall, Richard Dizel. And um, I just want to give you some feedback that we received recently for our episode 87 which was the one where we interviewed Jim Apparel. It says, hi, Steve. I've been checking your show out for a while, but I just had to let you know what a pleasure it was to listen to your latest interview with Mr. Jim Apparel. He's a man who's had a hand in a bunch of movies that were really important to me growing up, and I still love them. It was fascinating hearing him talk about all the guys he worked with and meeting the guys he was inspired by. And you always do a good job asking the right questions to these folks. It made my Monday. I could have easily listened to that six-hour version. Keep up the good work, and I'm looking forward to the Rick Catazone interview as well. Take care, Ryan. Thanks for the feedback, Ryan. And um, again, as I said earlier in the podcast, if you want to leave us feedback, email us at diecastmoviereviewpodcast at gmail.com. I just recently interviewed Rick Catazone, and that'll be coming out in a future episode. Um, our next two episodes that'll be coming out, our next one is going to be the debut of Hammerama with my friend Alistair Hughes and I talking about Hammer Films. Um, that one's going to be a little bit different in that he is doing the editing and the production values, and his are by far way better than mine, so you're going to be in for a treat. And the episode after that is an interview with one of the stars of the movie that we'll be talking about, Yanaya Faye. So I hope you enjoy both those episodes when they come out. On the Hammerama episode, will be debuting in just a couple of days. Otherwise, 
Everybody have a good day and listen to the promo of Hammerama to take us out of this episode. Bye. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hammerama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter Freely. And of your own will. Part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of hammer horror from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film Vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across, then and now, reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hammerverse. Our encounters with the stars. A film poster critique. And unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories, stitched together from both ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast.